Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode two of season two of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Annabelle Chauncey. Annabelle is the founding director and CEO of the School for Life Foundation. Annabelle founded School for Life in 2007 at the age of 21, determined to make a difference to communities in rural Uganda by providing high-quality education to children and adults. Among Annabelle's many achievements, she was awarded an Order of Australian Medal in 2015, the New South Wales Young Woman of the Year Award also in 2015, and the Sydney University Alumni of the Year Award for Service to Humanity in 2016. School for Life continues to be one of Australia's leading foundations with outstanding projects in the education, vocational training and healthcare sectors in rural Uganda. Annabelle, thank you so much for being on the show today. No worries. Thanks for having me, Rachel. So you just got back from climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Is that, is that correct? <laughs> I did. How are you feeling? I did. I'm, I'm still suffering. No, yeah. <laughs> no. no, it was awesome. It was such a good experience. We had a we had a really good time. We had 17 trekkers this year, which was awesome. Um, and yeah, everyone made it up. Oh, sorry, one one made it um, just a little bit before summit. But as far as I'm concerned, she definitely still made it. So yeah, it was an awesome result. What an achievement! I mean, wow, fantastic. Um, we might come back to that. It certainly challenges you. <laughs> yeah, I definitely. can imagine. There's a lot of learning. <laughs> yes. Oh, gosh, I can imagine. Okay. So can you start by taking us back to 2007? You were six weeks into a volunteering trip to Kenya and a very violent election began in the country. What effect did that have on you? Sure. It was an interesting time for me. I was 21 at the time. Um, I travelled over to Kenya to teach English to children in some of the most rural and remote areas. Um, And quite quickly, Kenya went to election and the violence escalated. And I think what was really challenging for me during that period was that essentially the Australian government said, okay, radio, you're out of there. Um, And when you've gone over to help people and all of a sudden you're sort of having the cord pulled on you and you have to kind of turn around and leave, probably when they need you the most, that felt pretty uncomfortable. Um, However, there wasn't any other option and particularly obviously when you're looking at risk matrices with the organisation that I was volunteering with, um, there was no other choice. Um, But fortuitously, I was evacuated across across the border into Uganda and I think that's really, I guess, where my passion and love for East Africa grew. Um, I was lucky enough in a lot of ways to continue my experience there. I wasn't ready to go home yet, so I decided to roll my sleeves up and just volunteer with a whole bunch of other organisations to just give a hand wherever I possibly could. Wow. Wow. I I guess that would have been a poignant moment, as you said, when you're there to help and you're a volunteer and suddenly you're being told to leave at the point that 
that people need you most. And I suppose your response really exemplifies how genuine you were and your commitment to being there and helping. Yeah, I think, look, the thing is as well is, um, you know, people don't have voices in these situations. Um, A lack of education leads to violence. And I don't think it's necessarily because of anything other than frustration, you know. For many of them, they were sort of just voicing their opinions and becoming extremely frustrated by what was an incredibly corrupt election. Um, And there was this landslide of votes towards the president who was in at the time, in power at the time, and he was sworn in very quickly overnight and the rest of the country kind of just had had enough. So, yeah, look, it was an interesting time and, um, look, had it not erupted into conflict, we would have, I would have never found myself in Uganda. So um, it has its upsides as well. Yeah, everything happens for a reason, doesn't it? So exactly. you, you then went to Uganda and School for Life evolved. How did you acquire that initial seed funding for School for Life? And probably for the benefit of our listeners that aren't aware of what seed funding is, could you explain that and, and the process of, of acquiring seed funding for School for Life? Yeah, absolutely. Look, um, there's a lot that happened in between. Essentially, the long and the short of it was I dedicated the next couple of years to going backwards and forwards from Uganda, um, developing a strategy, um, doing some R&D around what actually was happening on the ground in terms of education delivery. Where were the gaps? Where could we fit ourselves into those gaps? And where could we provide the greatest support that would be the most community-owned? So once we had together a business plan, we went um, out to basically ask anybody who would listen for funding. Seed funding is essentially the funding that it takes to get you off the ground. Um, And for many people, the use of seed funding is not only for actually building things, but also for setting up the organisation, for getting licences and registrations, acquisition of land, all those sorts of things. So it was really important for us to get our value proposition really clear, um, to really have our strategy set. Myself and my co-founder, Dave Everett, were 21 at the time. So you can imagine with half a law degree um, and a whole bunch of passion and naivety behind me, my prospects for funding weren't great. Um, However, I was driven and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Um, I knew that education was the best way of making a difference for children in rural Uganda. So I was very much possessed by the concept of, of actually finding this funding. So when I first set out, um, we had a lot of setbacks and a lot of people kind of said to me, come back to me when you've grown up, come back to me when you've finished your career, charity, you know, should be done at the end of your career, not at the beginning. Don't come back to me at all. Um, <laughs> but I was determined and I think those naysayers and critics are the ones who sort of spurred me on to want to do more, um, to prove them wrong in a lot of ways. Um, But the seed funding came from a beautiful woman who remains um, an investor in School for Life today, has been part of the journey over the last 10 years. Um, Her background was um, in, she'd actually been funding some schools in Papua New Guinea. She founded a retail chain called Clint's Crazy Bargains, the $2 shop um, Mm -hmm. discount store line that was um, a big part of Australia's history in the early days of kind of China manufacturing cheap goods that were for sale. Um, And she'd made um, a significant amount of money 
through the sale of her business and had consequently turned to philanthropy because it was her time to give back. And I remember going to meet with her in Darling Harbour. She'd never met me before. And I said to her, you know, I want to build these schools. We're going to empower local people to help themselves. Just need some money. Um, and she gave me $10,000. And I remember I walked away absolutely shaking. I just thought, oh, my <laughs> Um, so it was, it's really exciting. You never forget the first funding that you ever get because I think it's really testament to your hard work and dedication to the cause. Ah, oh, of course. You, so you've brought up two things there that I want to um, dive a bit deeper into. The first, a lot of my work is focused on on working with not-for-profits to identify their value proposition and communicate it in order to attract investment. And it's it's really challenging. Uh, we have lots of methodologies yeah. that, that can help you to do that. But at its core, you really have to know what value, you have to know your why, I suppose. Yeah. So what what sort of journey was that for you to identify what, what your value proposition was? Look, it was it was during the R and D phase, I guess, because what we really had to work out was: is there room on this planet for another charity? And if we are going to found a charity, then what sets us apart? Why start another charity if there's one already out there doing something which we believe in? And so it was really kind of important to understand what was it that we were going to do that other people weren't going to do and to understand the market really well. So you look at an organisation, for example, like World Vision. It's operating across, you know, many countries internationally. It runs on relatively large overheads, of course, as do most large organisations. Now, I looked at that and I thought to myself, how, um, for example, how is it delivering on its mission? Now, World Vision's doing some amazing things, but I think in a lot of ways it's probably scale over necessarily depth. Now, what I realised over time through my experiences in Uganda was that education at its core needs to be supported by a bunch of ancillary services if it's going to be quality. Now, those services include things like the provision of food, um, because if you're not healthy, you can't learn, clean water to decrease absenteeism and ensure that our kids stay healthy. We do vocational and technical training for adults because we recognise that many of the adults in our communities had only been to school up until year two. Solar electricity, because only 1% of Ugandans in rural Uganda have access to electricity. So we knew that our approach was going to be holistic. And for us, the best approach was therefore to be grassroots and stay quite small so that we'd be nimble and agile, so that we were flexible and able to adapt as and when we needed to. And really, I guess, to be enabling and empowering the local community to help themselves for the long term. So that was a really important key component in order to be sustainable over time. So our value proposition stemmed out of what we saw as a need on the ground and a recognition that we couldn't do it all because we simply wouldn't have enough funding to do everything. So we were going to go quite deep and do what we do really, really well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you made. And we had um, Maddie Vaughan on the show uh, last season from Adara Development and she yeah. made a similar – I know, I think you know them, don't you? Yeah, yeah. she's great. <laughs> Adara's amazing. Yeah. Incredible and, organization. Oh, they are. And, they, and, and Maddie made the same point that depth rather than scale is a big part of their value proposition and doing yeah. what they do – 
to a very high you know quality rather than trying to scale um and i think that's a really important uh, decision for not-for-profits to make yeah exactly and i think at the end of the day um you know both approaches are, are valuable um for us it was because you know we we're 21 starting something and we knew that funding was going to be tr- tricky so we needed to at least get the runs on the board really well so that we knew that we could then go and scale i want the foundation to be right first because the last thing you want to do is grow too quickly and fall over yeah, of course, of course. Now, the other question I had from your earlier point, you talk about finding that first seed funding from a fairly unique investor. It, it sounds mm-hmm. like a philanthropic sort of investment. Yes, um, yeah, private ancillary fund. Right. Okay, so how how do you know that someone's the right investor for you? Like would you ever turn away an investor? Yes, absolutely. I have um, and probably will continue to. Mm -hmm. One thing that I'm really, really solid on is that I drive the strategy of the organisation. Now, funders will come and go throughout your career. They will come in potentially with some of their own views or their own values or their own ideas that they want to drive forward. Now, that's completely understandable. Everybody, um, you know, in philanthropy, I truly believe that Um, you know, it's your dollars. I want you to see impact. I want you to be proud of the impact and, um, you know, uh, the the, um, results that we're getting on the ground, 100%. But if a donor comes into my world and says to me, look, Annabelle, I'm going to give you a million dollars if you go build a maternal health clinic, I'm going to have to say to them, look, thank you so much, but that's not what we do at School for Life. Mission creep is something which is a real threat to organisations, particularly grassroots organizations who are in need of funding but if you start to creep off what you're good at and what you know quite often that can lead to failure so there have been a lot of situations over time where I have turned around and said look thank you so much I really appreciate that you're trying to achieve x but we're really on the path to achieve y and we're really we're we're content with where we are and we just need to get some funding to deliver on those goals Mm. that's such an important point mission creep I don't think I've heard that phase before but I really like it yeah I think look it's it's, it's an interesting one and I think you know it is really tricky when you're running an NFP because at the end of the day we are at the hands in in a lot of ways we are at the hands of that the person that's giving us the money and but what you do have to remember um and I guess you know sort of continue to remind yourself is that you're at the cold face you know the problem you know the problem that you're trying to solve inherently and if you don't, then you need to work harder to research it. Um, but don't start sort of letting somebody with money who probably has been highly successful in business in their own right dictate strategy. Certainly have an input but not dictate because then you're just giving away the whole reason why you exist. Mm, certainly. Okay, so you mentioned earlier that education can't be delivered in a in a vacuum and that in order for education to have its full impact it has to be delivered alongside a number of other services like nutrition and um, the provision of, of of solar energy and vocational training for adults etc how does that all factor into your strategy like if, if if those aren't the things that school for life is driving how do you help to ensure that that broader enabling environment and ecosystem is where it needs to be so our driver is 
the provision of quality education, but I would say that those are input factors because if we don't have kids that are healthy, they can't learn. So what started off for us as a model, which was, okay, let's build schools um, that centre around the community, that provide the entire community with access to um, education, quite quickly became, okay, well, we've got kids walking between five and 10 kilometres every day on an empty stomach to get to the mud hut, um, to, to get to the school. They're falling asleep on their desks because they're exhausted and most of them are only receiving one meal a day at home. Many of them don't have shoes on their feet. Um, for so many, they're coming to school with waterborne viruses or malaria. So they're missing about two weeks of school every couple of months. So we realised that in order to deliver on our mission, which was quality education, we needed to provide those services. So they all form a part of our of our work. And I would describe our I would describe our work as the as as community centres. Really, they're little hubs within the community that sort of radiate outwards. We provide employment. We provide capacity development opportunities. We provide vocational and technical training for adults, um, and then of course nutrition, clean water. So they're really these centres, epicentres that help to lift the entire community out of poverty. Yeah. And and do you think all of those factors help to disrupt the poverty cycle individually or we need them all simultaneously in order to break the poverty cycle? Oh, that's a good question. Um, my approach, as I've sort of said, is one of depth because I do believe that they go hand in hand. But I will always argue until I run out of breath that education is the greatest way of making a difference because if you, you know, if you don't know health um, because you haven't had the opportunity to go to school or you don't know how to read and write, then you're not going to gain employment. So education really at its root, I believe, is the centre for, for massive social change. Yeah, I agree. I, I really agree with that. Uh, okay, so there's a couple of other things I wanted to get into. Um, the first one is around education in emergencies. So education in emergencies seems to be this subsection of education that has been gaining a lot more traction in recent years. I participated in a workshop last year with DFAT, which was basically based on this premise that if a child spends more than eight months out of school due to an emergency, it's more than likely that they'll never go back. So that eight-month window is a really, really critical time. Uh, and we talked about how can we how can we provide education in the midst of an emergency? What does that actually look like? So with your experience having having been in an emergency in Kenya, and I'm sure you've got other experience around that as well, how can education be delivered in circumstances that you know normally would prevent it? Good question. I haven't probably been at the cold face of huge emergencies. Um, I guess my my work is primarily in rural Uganda where things are pretty stable um, and have been since sort of 86. I think the reality is um, flexibility is incredibly important and I think getting the buy-in of the parent is really important as well. Um, something we've worked very deeply on is just garnering a very strong community connection, so ensuring that we have participation from both parents um, and full belief in the education process, so bringing in parents almost termly or even more actually, probably twice a term, um, to be a part of visitation days, to be there for their kids receiving their reports so that they know the value of the education that the child 
is achieving or getting over time. And I think one of the big offshoot benefits of that is the child takes the education home and usually uses it to teach their parents. So I think engagement is key, particularly in, in emergency situations. Um, I think technology potentially has a part to play, a growing part to play. Um, we aren't necessarily leveraging that. We've been more traditional in, you know, sort of the books um, and pens and papers and chalkboards and things like that. But over time, I do believe that particularly in these contexts, technology can have an amazing part to play as you engage children in the learning process and keep them there, um, which is, you know, almost the most important thing. As you say, the last thing you want is for kids to be out of school for eight months and then drop off um, because that's going to decrease their employment prospects and for many girls, of course, will become, you know, significantly more difficult um, to to enable them, you know, access to education on an ongoing basis. Yeah, so, yeah. That's, that's, that's a really good point. And I think you raised a really important point there when you said you need community buy-in. And if Absolutely. you don't have that community buy-in before an emergency, you're not going to get it during an emergency. So that's the sort no. of thing that you need to establish beforehand. And I think from what I know of School for Life, that's something that you seem to have done really well. As you said, these are community hubs, but it's really clear that the community is deeply engaged in your yeah. mission and what you're and doing. and has been since the outset, and that has been key to success. So it's from, from the ideation phase we have sat with them for hours and hours on end and had meetings. What do you want? Um, how can we best support you? Do you even want us here? Because if you don't, that's totally cool, but we're not going to kind of push ourselves on you. And then once we acquired land, it was, you know, locals were building um, the schools, so digging the foundations, pressing the bricks. They were there every single day um, working on the site. So that employment flowed through and then it's moved into teaching staff. So, you know, and employing people from around the local area so that they're the role models for the kids. Um, so it's just been, you know, really interesting to watch that flow on effect. And as I say, pivotal um, to ensuring the sustainability of the schools for the long term. Mm, definitely. And you, you also have a local team that works for School for Life in Uganda. How, how did you build that team and, and how do you ensure that, that everyone is, is on the same page with, with your mission? I have an amazing team over there, um, which is lucky, um, lucky but not unstrategic either. We've really grown fast. Um, over the last two years, we've built two schools, so we tripled our size. We went from having 30 staff to 120. So our level of growth over time, a short period of time, has been fast but also I guess has meant that you know we've needed to have the right people in the right seats on the bus um, I attribute most of School for Life success to an incredible educator that we have over there who we found um, when she applied for a job as the director of schools um, she came out to the schools she'd been orphaned as a as a teenager both of her parents passed away her name's Jennifer and she actually had gone back to um, waitress in a restaurant in order to put herself back through high school and then after she finished she went on to university and, and managed to save enough money to put her brothers and sisters through school so you get that purpose-driven people you know those purpose-driven people are the ones who push the organization forward and and who walk the values of school for life um, she also you know is the the leader 
um, the role model for the rest of the team. And I'm not there all the time. So it's really important that you have those key people who run really good teams and know how important it is um, to empower one another through through our vision. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's important. That was a really nice story and, and, and I wanted to ask you, is there any other stories that really stand out to you of, of the way School for Life has impacted upon an individual person? Yeah, there's many. I imagine one that of, there's hundreds. <laughs> yeah, one of, one of an amazing one that we have is um, a lady named Rachel <laughs> and her um, background was she lived in the local community and she would come to school every single day and she would clean and she had really good English and she had such a beautiful sort of energy about her. And when we said to her, Rachel, what are you saving up for? She said, I'm saving up to put myself into university because I want to be a teacher. And uh, anyway, we said we went out to the database and managed to find her a sponsor to give her a scholarship to go to university. And um, she's now back at School for Life. She's worked her way up to become the assistant dean of studies at one of our schools, which is just awesome. Um, So just to be able to give somebody the wings to fly, I think, and that's really what School for Life's all about is giving people a hand up, not a hand out, um, and enabling them, you know, sort of capacity development so that they can be successful in their own right. And that's also kind of flown through the organization you know as um we've grown over time with kids you know achieving magnificent results and us having the ability I guess to break down some social stigmas as well um we had a little girl called called Joyce who suffered from epilepsy um when she started at school for life she was having three seizures a day now in the community when you have epilepsy or any type of disability Um, people think that you are often possessed by the devil so you might be sort of victim of witchcraft because there are some pretty old school beliefs over in Uganda still and um, she'd been sort of hidden away by her grandmother didn't want her to come to school every day Um, and often that happens there's you know the community ostracizes people but we brought Joyce to school every day we managed to stabilize her epilepsy by giving her medication that costs us five bucks a month And she now goes to school. Um, She's included as part of the community and part of our schools. And that flow-on effect has been massive because it breaks down the stigma around, you know, just because you're disabled, you shouldn't have a chance to go to school. So, yeah, it's been awesome. (laughs) Awesome to see. Both those stories gave me goosebumps. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're lucky. We're very lucky to do the work we do. Um, It's not without its challenges, but it's, um, it's certainly rewarding. Yeah, Wow. Okay, before we finish up, I wanted to chat to you about, I mean, you are a leader in the not-for-profit sector in Australia and your your leadership and, and, and your achievements are very widely recognised. Um, so I want to understand your take on some of the trends that we're seeing in the not-for-profit sector in Australia at the moment. Sure. So I think a big one that I see is radical changes to the way that not-for-profits are being funded. Mm-hmm. I think in Australia we see a lot of funding fatigue these days. We do, as you know, we have so many charities and I think people aren't really sure who to donate to and they're constantly being asked to donate to this and that. And I think not-for-profits are increasingly looking towards social enterprise and impact investment and other sort of ways of funding their operations. Yes, absolutely. What's your view on that? 
I think we have to. I think, um, you know, not to be too direct, but I think it's innovate or die in a lot of ways. And I think, you know, the philanthropic industry needs to move. Um, I think one of the challenges for the not-for-profit is that, you know, often people are driven by purpose and may not have the same commercial skills or the same level of investment um, as the for-profit industries do. And that does make it tricky to get the right heads around the problem. Um, I think we must innovate um, and certainly at School for Life we are in the midst of kind of phase two, which is to provide um, a more sustainable way of funding the schools for the long term, which will enable us to, to you know, potentially scale over time. Um, some of those types of things are uh, one is a community uplift strategy. So how do we empower the local people with the skills that they need to become productive and profitable so that they can pay for their own school fees? Um, and the second one is an investment strategy. Now, that can be quite hybrid and can be taken in many different directions. You know, one is obviously your old school future fund idea where you, you know, put money in the bank and live off the interest. Um, the second is looking probably more riskily but I guess in some ways more commercially is, you know, are there ways of us investing in Uganda in businesses um, or the acquisition of land, um, things like that to enable us to generate a return on investment? Now, for us, that would sit in a completely different fund to the philanthropic fund because you have to always be very honest with your donors about where, where, where their dollars are going. But there is an increasing appetite for it. Um, so often I sit with finance minds who turn to me and say, you know, if you do something like that, Annabelle will be the first people to invest. So I think we do have to pivot. Um, we do have to become as agile as we can in the not-for-profit. And I guess that's why I like being grassroots because we have that opportunity to kind of move and shift quite nimbly. Um, but, yeah, I mean, gone are the days, I think, where we can purely rely 100% on philanthropy. Um, and I think we just have to stay ahead of the game as much as we possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, really well said. And uh, uh a big purpose of this podcast is looking at how the private sector specifically can play a more meaningful role in development. And that's the area I work with. Um, and and I, I work with, with both privates and not-for-profits. So I get to see both sides of that conversation. But I, I think from your perspective, what is the best role for corporate Australia and the private sector to be playing and how can the private sector support your work and the not-for-profit sector better? Oh, good question. Um, I think, I mean, statistically these days, I mean, we're looking at Gen Y taking over the workforce, but I think it's 2028. Um, Gen Y is notoriously more purpose than profit driven. So I think in order to engage staff and increase levels of retention, it is really important for corporates to be looking at what they're giving back other than just profit. Um, and I think more often than not, young people are choosing their place of employment based around the values of the company. So not only just from the from the sort of perspective of attracting and retaining good talent for themselves, but also because, you know, it's important for us to kind of coexist and work together. I think it's really important for charities to partner up with organisations um, in order to help them effectively deliver on their mission. But I also sort of tend to think that deeper partnerships are probably more effective 
um, rather than kind of giving five grand to 10 different organizations, perhaps think about giving 50 thousand dollars and doing something a bit more substantial and long lasting would probably be my advice um however you know notoriously because of our work being in africa it has been really difficult to garner corporate support um a lot of australian corporates are geared towards providing funding within australia and that's completely understandable um however i do think you know the dollar goes quite a long way over in a place like uganda um, and you can generate some pretty good results really quite quickly. So I think it's quite an interesting sort of space. It's definitely one to watch. And I think if anything, you know, companies' values are getting stronger towards giving, which is really exciting. You see a lot of the tech organisations like Salesforce and Atlassian who are really getting involved in philanthropy. And I, I truly think it sets them apart as being a place that's awesome to work at. Mm, so true. I went to a great event on this last week, which was co-hosted by Good to Give, which yep. is, you, you probably know them, they're sort of the organisation that creates platforms for corporations to have corporate giving programs. And the numbers were just amazing. You know, as you said, employees want to do this. It, they do. We don't need they a lot do. of convincing. <laughs> no, that's it. And I think it's just about finding, yeah, that values alignment is really important. And, you know, hearing from your team around what's important to them. Um, I know from my conversations across the market that the international space seems to be more and more important to the younger generation over time. And I think that's awesome. Um, it's a really exciting thing to see. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just really important to, to gain that feedback from your team in order to set up a strategy that's going to be really well supported internally. Mm. Agree. Okay, last question. Uh, this is the question I finish most of our interviews with, and it's what does success look like in 10 years for you? Good question. Um, so we're getting the foundations right now um, in order to become a model for education that can be replicated across the developing world. So as I spoke about, we're looking at we provide a multifaceted service, but at its core, the delivery and provision of quality education is key. So for us, it's about getting that right and becoming more sustainable in order to be able to scale and do more and affect the lives of more children and adults across the developing world, starting primarily in Uganda because that's the that's the place that we know so well. Great answer. Really great. I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what ha what happens next. Annabelle, thank you so much for being on the show. Your your leadership and your story is so inspiring and School for Life is just such a wonderful organisation and it's a, a privilege to hear more about it. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.